Well, would you turn to uh, Mark 13? And we'll be going through verses 9 and 10 today. Mark 13, verses 9 and 10. Here we come to the Olivet Discourse. The disciples asked Jesus about the signs of the end of the age. And it's almost like Jesus held the remote control of human history and he pressed the uh, fast-forward button and he skipped over more than 2,000 years of events that took place. He skipped over the destruction of the temple, the great persecution of the church in the 4th century, and he skipped over the entire church age and the rapture of the saints. And then he pressed the play button at the very last seven-year period of the end times. And then he began to expound on the cataclysmic events of this period, just before his return to clean up the earth from the Christ-rejecting world and to usher in his millennium kingdom. And so far, we've almost dissected every word that Jesus uttered from his lips and we've seen how that the Old Testament scripture attested to it as well as the New Testament affirmed it. The entire Bible is in perfect sync with what Jesus said about what will happen at the end times. And those cataclysmic events will cause severe anguish. We must know this, that everyone that will be there will feel this pain, deep anguish during this time of seven-year period. From the deception of the Antichrist to the worldwide wars, the famines, the earthquakes, the wrath of man and the wrath of God will be mixed and poured upon the entire globe, undiluted, unadulterated wrath. And everyone will be forced to drink it. And God will magnify his name. And the world will know who God is. No one will be exempted. No exception to the rule. Now what about the believers that will uh, live at this time? Are they going to taste this anguish, this pain? And some might be thinking, well, surely they'll, they'll have a VIP access to earthly comfort. Some people who don't believe in a free trip um, and they uh, claim that the church will go through the tribulation period, they say, yes, the church will go through a tribulation period, but oh, God will shelter the church and he will protect them from the end time wrath. I mean, surely... Surely everyone around uh, those who believe at that time will be starving to death, but Christians at that time will enjoy their um, good, well-done steak, right? I mean, when, when the earthquakes will turn the earth into a giant jumping castle, I mean, you won't need to be in a boat if you'll seasick. But surely Christians at this time will, will be sheltered from that, right? Well, how about we, we read this text before us? 
I believe this text will answer this question. Jesus now continues in verse 9, and he says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Not only will the believers at the end times will feel the agony of wars and famines, but they will be subjected to intense persecution. And this persecution will be so severe, so extreme, that it will make all other persecutions of the past would look like a joke. I mean, just imagine, well, what kind of torture will the Antichrist come up with to torment our brothers who would live at that time? I mean, if during our time that we live in right now, when God's restraining hand is limiting men from going rampant, and yet many Christians are tortured and killed, then what would it be like when God removes his restraining hand and man's pleasure for wickedness reaches the depth of hell? What would it be like then? Only God knows the extent of persecution at that time. Let's see uh, what this text says. And I pray as we go deeper and expose this passage and understand it, that our hearts will be drawn to Christ and that we would say, come, O Lord Jesus, and that we would be so thankful that we would be raptured before this time. We also want to learn and study how we ought to respond to persecution when it comes knocking at our doors. So we start with verse 9. It says, but be on your guard. Watch out. Danger is coming your way. And please know, Jesus started with the word but. Not and, but. It's not like, Oh, there will be earthquakes and famines and persecution. No, there will be earthquakes, famines, but watch out. There will be persecution. What does Jesus mean by this? It's like he's saying, don't let the earthquakes and famines distract you from what is to come. The pain and anguish because of the global events at the end times will be one thing, but the heartache and the torture that you'll be subjected to will be a whole different thing. It will be so severe, so agonizing. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus commands his followers to watch out. Back in verse 5, if you recall, the translator chose to render this word differently. And it says, see to it that no one misleads you. But even though this word see to it, it's rendered this way. But it's the same Greek word in verse 9. Be on your guard. Now, when he said it in verse 5, 
You say you've got to watch out from being misled. It's to do with focusing on the truth so not to be misled. But here in verse 9, when he says, be on your guard, why should they be on their guard? Well, Jesus is going to justify his warning, and that'll be the outline for today's message. There'll be two reasons why we've got to be on our guard. Just like those who will live at the end times will have to be on their guard. Why? First, persecution is severe. Second, your mission is clear. We'll start with the first one. Persecution is severe. Now, you've got to get ready. Fasten your seatbelt. We're going to go in for a real ride this time. Persecution is severe. Be on your guard. It's to do with the intense persecution that they'll have to expect it. The Antichrist will have something special in his heart for the believers at that time, and it's not going to be a good thing. Now, we're going to look at this severe persecution in two ways, from the Jewish authorities um, and then from the worldwide governments, as it's broken down nicely for us here. First, from the Jewish authorities, and it's got to do with religious focus, religious emphasis. So we read here, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. So believers will be delivered, meaning they will be arrested by the local police, they will be dragged into courts, they'll be taken into custodies, and you will be tried, you will be punished for what you believe in. Now the, the word synagogues here, it's just another word of saying assembling, uh, meeting places, a place of gathering. And Jew, the Jews back then, they used to meet in the synagogues for legal matters. It wasn't just a place of worship, it was legal matters as well. And the accusation here that believers will be accused of is religiously focused. Book of Acts is filled with a preview of this kind of persecution that will be unleashed on the people of God at the end times. You'll be falsely accused as a deceiver. You're liars. And I would say something like this, what is this nonsense that you're preaching? What do you mean that people don't have to do good works to be accepted by God? You're encouraging people to sin you, you false teachers, you heretics. You're trying to sway people from the path of righteousness into hell. You, you know what you belong to? You belong to a cult. Your Messiah is a fraud. He's an imposter. You're just like your, your master. You're all phonies. And just like the apostles you will be threatened. You will be warned. And they will say to you, don't you ever preach or teach in the name of Jesus. Don't you dare spread this filthy message about a risen Messiah who can save anybody that will come to you. Then it says, you will be flogged. 
And it speaks of torture. You will be beaten up. You will be whipped in your back. Believers will be flogged, meaning their skins will be cut up. Their bones will be showing. Their bodies will be disfigured. They will be walking around carrying their internal organs on their shoulders, figuratively speaking. That just speaks of how severe the persecution will be at this time. And it's not just the opposition of Jewish authority that believers would have to endure. Jesus now extends the magnitude of this massive persecution to encompass the whole wide world. And he says there, and you will stand before governors and kings. Now we have to pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying here. You will stand before governors. That speaks of the worldwide governments. That speaks of official judges, supreme courts, and kings. That speaks of presidents, prime ministers, premiers. There is something that is so relevant, especially to this age that we live in, and yet many Christians are ignorant of. What we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that history even tells us this, that persecution always begins at the government level. We have to understand this as we're even getting nearer and nearer to the end times. This has to be understood. Persecution never comes from bottom up. That's never been taught in the Bible nor in history. It's not that it's going to be that um, you share the gospel with your next door neighbor and then your next door neighbor hates you because you shared the gospel with him and then he's going to persecute you. Yes, this would happen, but that's kind of later down the track. He may oppress you, but not persecute you. You will stand before governors and kings. It's a top-bottom kind of persecution. The picture here is that you're going to be accused to be an enemy of the state, a criminal worthy of punishment. You will stand, meaning you'll be alone, helpless, without a lawyer to defend your case. And you're standing there guilty as charged. Your hands are cuffed. Your feet are shackled. And the government will consider believers as traitors. But this time, it's the accusation, the accusation will be socially focused. You'll be, fo you'll be accused of um, causing rights. Are you preaching hate speech? Why do you discriminate against homosexuals? You're homophobic. You're a rebel of the state. You're an extremist. You're a fundamentalist. Well, why, why do you lead so many people to defy our authorities? Now, please note, persecution, by the way, never begins with extreme measures at the very start of it. We need to understand this. That's why we've got to watch out. That's why I've got to be on guard. 
it, it never begins on the sixth gear right at the start. You know, like, you know, it's not going to be like, you know, the Antichrist on day one is going to come out and say, you know, I hate all Christians. Let's burn them all and drink their blood. And then the whole world will say, yeah, it's not going to be like that. No, the government will be subtle about it. But we don't know how it's going to be, but let me give you some examples of what it might be like. The government will accuse you of being unloving. I mean, look at you. It's because of your gathering the virus is spreading. It's because of your selfish way of life. There, there is another outbreak. Where is your love for the elderly? Where is your love for the weak and the vulnerable? Do you want to save life? Stop gathering. Stop preaching. Because the more you gather, and the more you preach, the more the virus will spread. We don't know how it's going to begin. But all the Bible tells us is that the government will call evil good. And what is good, evil. And so all believers who will want to actively obey the clear and direct commands of our Lord Jesus will be branded as evildoers by the mainstream media and they will be labeled as vicious criminals, danger to the society, and they will be worthy to be locked away. You will stand before governors and kings, Jesus said. Meaning that will say to you, you've got to obey us or else. If you don't, we'll shut down your business. We'll shut down your gathering. Don't you, don't you know that we have complete sovereign authority? I mean, we're the government here. And your existence is a threat to the society. You're very, very bad citizens. And we have no choice but to lock you up. Revelation 13, 17 tells us if, if you're a believer at that time, you won't even be able to buy or sell. Meaning you're going to be off the grid. Homes will be repossessed. Jobs will be lost. Revelation 6, verse 9. It says, I read from 9 to 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar. So now that's the fifth seal. So you've got seals, trumpets, and bowls. And now it's at the fifth seal. And at that point, it says, underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been what? Slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a, with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed 
even as they had been, would be completed. Here you've got the word slain, you've got the word blood, and you've got the word killed. Capital punishment will be reinstated just to kill those believers. And if the past persecution against Christianity in human history is a glimpse of what is to come, if, if it's just a, a preview of what is prepared for us or for those people who believe at the end times, then how many millions will be burnt at the stake for Jesus' sake? How many will be slaughtered? And yet others will have missing limbs. Their families will be killed. Children will be orphans. Women will be raped. And it will be a bloodbath period for Christians at that time. And the government, the very institution that God established, that is meant to protect our rights to worship God freely, will be the prime instigator of the oppression and the persecution against believers at that time. Now why? Why would they do that? Why? Why is it? The governments and kings will go hard against Christians. What's, what's their agenda? Well, Jesus tells us the reason in two words. He says, for what? My sake. Two words. My sake. You will be persecuted on my behalf. You will be my representatives. Meaning the government... It's not so much that they are hating you as much as it is hating me. It's not that you will be the direct object of their hatred. It's Christ whom they hate, whom you are living for. And the government wants to declare unlimited supremacy over the world. But they can't, but they keep on getting reminded. That it's Christ that has unlimited supremacy, not them. And in their envy, they hate Christ for that. Psalm 2, verse 2 and 3 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Against whom? Against Yahweh, against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to feel like God is in charge. We want to rebel against him. We hate the fact that he is supreme. It's really Christ that they want to kill. But how can they kill the giver of life? By killing those that identify themselves with him. Millions of Christians will love Christ so much that they won't back down. And for Jesus' sake, they will forfeit everything. It will cost them position, possession, popularity. It will cost them their freedom, their rights, their lives, simply because they identify themselves. With Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want you to pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. He again leaves one of his beautiful golden nuggets. We don't want to miss it. Something wonderful about Christ. It says here, as a what? Testimony to them. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Not against them, but to them. What does that mean? Even in their hatred and resentment towards Christ. And while the governments will be cold-blooded, savage murderers, yet Jesus loves them. And he desires them to be saved. How loving is our Christ. How gracious is he that while they're butchering and they're torturing believers everywhere. The mercy of God will sound forth through the very people that they're trying to kill. It, it, this, is, this is like what Jesus did on the cross, how he responded to those who killed him on the cross. Is it not? It's just a re-echo of what he did on the cross when, when the government persecuted Jesus, when Rome mocked him and tortured him, when with one word he could have annihilated all of them, at one word, with one word. But yet, what do we hear him say when he was hung on that cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. How loving Jesus must be. How graciously compassionate, pitiful. Christ is to these people. That while officials are abusive and ruthless and cold-blooded murderers, yet Jesus pleads for the forgiveness of their sin. So be on guard. Get ready. Persecution is coming. And brothers and sisters, if we just pause that, that moment and we just come back here and this time of ours, we don't need to be great prophets to know that, 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 that persecution is coming to this land. The wind of Christ-hating government is blowing persecution to this land. Persecution is casting its shadow upon us, even Melbourne. Right? This cloud above us is about to rain fire and brimstone on those who, who are truly saved. Be on your guard. Persecution is severe. Don't bury your head on the sand. Don't ignore the elephant in the room. Get ready for it. Get ready, brothers and sisters. Now, how do we respond to this persecution? What do we do when persecution coming, knocking at our doors? Do we run? What do we do? Do we try to take shelter? Let me tell you what Christ is communicating here. Second point, be on your guard because your mission is clear. Your mission is clear. Keep focusing on your mission. Give your 110% of yourself to the task that Jesus is setting before his people. 
Be on your guard, meaning don't be distracted by all these things. Be focused. You have a mission to fulfill. And what is your mission? What is our mission? Verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Here's the great commission re-echoed. Brothers, Jesus did not save us and left us on earth to have earthly comfort, to live with ease. We must remind ourselves of this truth, brothers and sisters. But Jesus cares less about how much money we have in our bank accounts or what university degree we have or the size of the house that we live in. My dear brothers, sisters, Remind ourselves, we must remind ourselves, this is not our home. Let us not seek our comfort now. Let us live with eternal purpose. Why? Jesus' mission for all of us is crystal clear. His heart is undivided. His mind is set. And what is Jesus' mission? The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Let's understand what this means. Let's break it down and understand Jesus' mission for all of us. First, the gospel. That's Jesus, the God-man. He came among us. He died for us and rose again. And he will come back to take us to himself. The gospel. The gospel is not that you uh, do good works in order for God to accept you. It's not about you feeling holy or humble or feeling good so that God would accept you. No, the gospel is that in Christ alone is free salvation to any sinner that would come to Christ. For there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. The gospel is that that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And if you don't come to Christ, you are and you will forever be under the wrath of God. That's the gospel. Must first be preached. Must first. Preaching it will be of necessity, of paramount. Must first. It's first of importance. First in urgency. This speaks of priority. It'll be literally a matter of life and death. The gospel must first be preached. It won't be whispered. It won't be subtle. It won't be just lived out. Preached, meaning it will be verbalized. It'll be proclaimed. Preaches when you speak loudly, meaning it will be thundered aloud. It will be shouted from the rooftop. And be preached by whom? Well, by the very people that will be persecuted, right? 
In the end times, there will be 144,000 Jews that will come to saving faith and now will go worldwide preaching the gospel. There will be two witnesses that God will bring from heaven. That will be the evangelists at that time. There will be an angel that will be flying all around the globe proclaiming the gospel. Also, there will be those people who will believe uh, through all, all those evangelists that they too will be evangelists at that time. The gospel must first be preached. To whom? To part of the world? Most of the nations? Amazing. All the nations. While the ground is getting soaked with the blood of the martyrs, the gospel will be preached to all the nations. Meaning the gospel will reach Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan. Pakistan will know who Christ is. The stubborn walls of China will be penetrated by the gospel. White man, black man, yellow man, the rainbow color LGBTQ men and women will hear the gospel. Russia, Ukraine, Africa. And there will be no square inch on planet Earth that will not hear and know about the Lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world. All the nations. Even Melbourne will know the gospel. Would you believe it? And then Andrew will not be able to stop it. Now, please note the paradox. It's amazing. When persecution is at its highest, the preaching of the gospel will be at its maximum. Let me repeat it one more time. If you would take anything home, take this. When persecution is at its highest, the preaching of the gospel will be at its maximum. And it will cause a massive revival that will sweep across the whole earth. Revelation 7, 9 tells us this. It says that after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count. Amazing. It says here, from every nation. How come? Because the gospel was preached to whom? To all the nations. It says, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Masses of people will come to Christ at that time. Praise be to God. The blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the spread of the gospel. Revival will not happen by just uh, singing Kumbaya. You show me a revival, I will show you bloodbath of the faithful men and women who laid down their lives as a foundation to this revival. And the greater the persecution, the greater the expansion of the gospel. And end time is not going to be any different from that. It will come. The kingdom of, God, of man is in a collusion course with the preaching of the gospel. It is inevitable. And not all the kings of the world put together with the Antichrist will be able to stop it. 
Let the governments cut down one tree and they will do nothing but plant a forest. So also, if they kill 1,000, our sovereign God will raise 10,000 more believers to carry the gospel. It's all in a divine calendar. And God knows exactly what he's doing. We've got to trust him. Be on your guard. Meaning believe that God is in control. Embrace his mission to be your mission, even in the midst of persecution. And brothers, sisters, I want to tell you that in 10,000 years from the time when we're raptured and we look back in time, it's not that we're going to find that the enemy brought persecution and it is God that brought revival. No, no way. It is God that ordained persecution and it is God who brought revival. What is persecution and the government by arrows in the hands of God? God holds arrows and the bow in his hands and he's the one that shoots. He is in charge. Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are all like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of a dust on the scales. Governments, nations, all together, the Bible says even a couple of verses later, are like nothing. They are less than nothing. They are minus in comparison to the Almighty God. Well, we'll come to the end. And I want to conclude with a question. I want to put a question and answer it. You see, one, one thing that would be most likely in many people's minds is that how is it that God would bring persecution to to bring the preaching of the gospel? Why is it that we, we have to have persecution so that all nations would hear the gospel? Why does it have to be this way? Why couldn't it be another way? Well, there are many ways of answering this question, but I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna go for the jugular. And Lord willing, next week we'll expound on this even more with the, with the following passage that we'll be preaching on. You see, because persecution, especially in persecution, Christ is magnified all the more. In the midst of persecution, Christ is magnified all the more. Let me, let me tell you how it works. You know, when we have this world's riches, we tend to be too comfortable, don't we? We tend to be too comfortable. We tend to play games and flirt around with worldly desires. And, and then Jesus is no longer glamorous in our sight, right? Christ, rather than being the greatest treasure of our lives, worthy of our worship, we just only give him the bare minimum. Why? Because we're clinging to our toys too much. How in the world are we ever going to be able to give testimony to governors and kings when we stand before them? If we are clinging to our toys. Rather than we're going to give them testimony for Christ, we're going to try to 
be wise in our own eyes so that we can flee this persecution so that we can cling all the more to our toys. Jesus will be the last resort that we go to when we have trials in our lives. And it's kind of like, you know, what we say, when, when we are in this cold, apathetic state towards Christ, we would say to ourselves, I've exhausted all other avenues to fix my problems. I guess now it's time to pray. But then what happens when God begins to open a storehouse of hell upon his people? What happens when the waves of persecution begin to splash blood on the people of God? We get on our knees and we begin to pray. And then Christ slowly begins to shift from being the last resort in our lives to the very first person in our lives. And yet that is not even enough as God continues and through persecution begins to burn our affections to this world into ashes. And as it hurts us deeply, we begin to cling to Christ all the more. Until he's not just the first person in our lives, but he would be all in all, the only person in our lives. Because now we're focused to gaze upon his beauty and we find that it's far more glorious than anything that we're held on to in this world. Then we begin to cry out to him and we say, Jesus, you are all I need. You are all I desire. I cannot live without you. God, please take away my life. Take away everything. Just give me Christ. And then the gospel of Christ will begin to burn in our hearts so much that we would say to those who are in authority, do what you ever wish to do with us or our families. But the glory of Christ is burning in our hearts and we cannot contain it. We cannot keep it in. We must preach him to the world. Brothers, sisters, knowing Christ has the very power to change our hearts. And we would no longer fear kings and governments of this world. You see, by means of persecution, God begins to remove the scales of our eyes. And as we begin to see Christ as he truly is, high and lifted up, we would no longer fear kings, presidents, prime ministers, premiers. We would never would want to beg them to not hurt us. No. We would courageously stare at them in the eye. And we would tell him, repent. Brothers, sisters, when the weakest lamb is bathed into the glory of Christ, God turns this lamb into a ferocious lion. And then he bids even kings to bow their knees before Christ. And when the welching world see the power of God in us, not by us reviling, not by us 
returning evil for evil, being violent, but in a very powerful proclamation of the crucified Savior, in our bold declaration of the gospel. The world would ask, how is it that their God would use so incompetent, weak, just standard people like them? How is it God would, their God would make them stand before our kings and their courages towering over those kings? And with every drop of blood that spills to the ground from our bodies, brothers and sisters, it is not just a testimony to them of how precious Christ is to us, but it will be and increased our eternal weight of glory that is awaiting us on the other side of eternity. May Christ be magnified even through persecution that is coming to this church. What do we take out of this, brothers and sisters? What Jesus said to the disciples, I say to all of us, including myself, we will not go through the end time persecution, praise God. But there is one coming. There is one coming. We must not bury our heads in the sand. Be on your guard. You don't have to wait until God brings persecution so that you can enjoy the glory of Christ. Be prepared. Focus on Christ. Get to know him in person. Love him. And choose to step away from all these attachments in this world to hold him. What does that mean? We'll focus on it next week. As Jesus begins to, well, as Jesus continues to tell us as what will happen during this persecution time. When the world will hate you, when your own family Will, will take you into custody. If you don't know Christ, I plead with you this morning, come to him. He died, he rose again. The burning of hell be hundred thousand times worse than the burning of the government when you deny Christ. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. He alone can save you from the eternal wrath of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you, Lord. We praise you. You are good. You've always been good to us. And even when our flesh and the world question your goodness and would say, how is it that you bring persecution to your own people? But for eternity to come, when we are really and truly enjoying you, when we see you face to face, when the eternal weight of glory is presented to us by your hands. We will know 
how good you have always been to us and that you gave us an opportunity to ever increase our rewards and to ever increase our delight in Christ, even during the harshest persecution. Well, we're praising for that. And we pray, Lord, for those among us who do not know Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts, convert them, take their heart of stone and give them a new heart. Lord, we, we plead with you. We beg you, Lord. We beg you for those loved ones that you've given us in our lives, our family members and friends. We pray, Lord, that, that the gospel will be made clear to them and that they will come to saving faith. Time is running out. And we pray that you work, Lord, in their hearts even now. In Jesus' name, amen.